Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. In just a moment, outgoing Atlanta Public School Superintendent, Dr. Maria Karstarfin. I have always used our vision to be a high-performing school district where students love to learn, educators inspire, teachers engage, and the community trusts Atlanta Public Schools again. That has been my aspirational goal from the beginning set by this board and has um, led us or motivated us uh, for the last six years. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this. Georgia health officials reported more than 2,225 additional COVID-19 cases Sunday. That's a record high of the daily reported infection statewide since the state has been reporting daily totals. Now, this brings Georgia's total number of reported cases to 77,210. And there are now 10,711 hospitalized. And now 2,778 deaths have been reported. This, of course, is all according to the Georgia Department of Health. In other news, Fulton County and the Atlanta Hawks are teaming up. No, they're not going to play a game, but they have plans to create what they call Georgia's largest voting location ever. It'll be at State Farm Arena. Now, the Fulton Board of Registration and Elections approved this decision earlier today. WABE's Emil Moffitt was there and spoke to Fulton County Elections Director Richard Barron. I think this is going to be a monumental addition because, first of all, we're going to have probably two entrances. And speaking of November, we're going to use the bowl where the basketball floor normally sits. We're going to be able to put a couple hundred machines down there, 25 check-in sites, and we'll be able to socially distance. We've already talked with the Hawks about how we can do it. The Hawks are really excited about participating in this, and offering this up was very generous on their part. They're going to have their own I Voted stickers that will be special to the people that vote there. And I think... I think it's going to be a, a, a different experience to vote at State Farm Arena, and I think people from all over the county are probably going to go vote there. They'll either jump on Marta. The parking's going to be free to also to, to vote there, and the Hawks are going to market this. They said they're going to market it like the Lakers are coming to town. So I imagine that this is going to be probably the premier early voting site in the country for those sites that or states that do early voting. And I think having the Hawks want to participate and lend staff to help um, just says a lot about their organization and commitment to the community. And you can wear your vintage throwback Dominique Wilkins number 21 jersey if you have one. Now, officials plan to use the stadium as a voting location starting July 20th. That's when early voting begins for the Georgia general primary runoff races. Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena CEO Steve Coonan County officials and others will hold a press conference with more details in just about an hour. And you can hear more later today during All Things Considered, hosted locally by Jim Burris. And finally, Atlanta city officials have lifted the boil water advisory issued over the weekend for all those affected areas. This was caused by a water main break on Georgia Tech's campus. The Atlanta Department of Watershed Management reports the break happened on Saturday at the intersection of First Drive and Hemp Hill Avenue. Officials say all water service has been restored and samples show no contamination. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Just a little over six years ago, on March 7th, 2014, inside Hope Hill Elementary School, there was a big announcement regarding the Atlanta Public Schools. 
When Atlanta gets it right, we decide to build the world's busiest airport in the midst of a national recession. When Atlanta decides to get it right, we land the 1996, the 100th Olympiad over Athens, Greece. When Atlanta gets it right, we solve problems like crumbling infrastructure and sewer systems. We solve problems like, like underfunded pensions in a way in which no other city in America has done. Education is another opportunity for Atlanta to teach the world how to get it right. We've come through a troublesome period, but I am proud to say that this board, this city, has decided to get it right for our children. We have decided to get it right for our children. Without further ado, <laughs> without further ado, I am proud to announce our sole finalist for the superintendency in the Atlanta Public Schools, Dr. Maria Kostartan. Thank you. That was then APS School Board Chair Courtney English introducing Dr. Maria Joel Karstarfin. Now, during that time, there was still the sting of the cheating scandal. Also at that time, 12 educators had been indicted. It is now 2020, and a lot has happened in between. And joining me now is Dr. Karstarfin. In less than 48 hours from the end of her time as superintendent, she is now the outgoing APS superintendent. Dr. Karstarfin, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I'm always glad to be on WABE and closer look with Rose Scott. That is this the, is my favorite interview. I am always available let's, for you. I appreciate that. Let's begin with this past school year. Unlike any other, obviously due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I've asked this question so many times on this program as it relates to this. What do you make of this in this extraordinary time? in our nation, in the world, and, and as it relates to what you have always been a part of, which is educating students. Yeah, so, I mean, I was inspired by the clip that you played. Um, that was our board chair at the time, Courtney English. And, um, and I think that his words resonate even today. It is another challenge, uh, not just for Atlanta, but for our nation and our, and our planet. And, uh, and if there's one place in the world where I feel like there is uh, so much grit, so much resilience, so much uh, commitment, it is in Atlanta. And so when we focus on the right things, uh, amazing things can happen. And so this city does have a lot of light and energy to it. And, uh, and while I can tell you COVID-19 has shown me some pretty uh, dark days, um, the, the, I think the challenge for us, especially as we were trying to close out the school year and what we've learned about the experience of our families is that it is going to get even worse for them then it will be better um, for some time. And, and I think that's just sort of the sobering reality of the impact of COVID-19, but it is also a reality of Atlanta, um, certainly since I've been here for the last six years, because I've seen a lot more um, growth and disparity than um, in, in, in recent years than I've seen in my entire tenure. So it's gonna be hard on the families that we serve in Atlanta Public Schools. What were you hearing from parents of your students that their households and what they were going through because of the, the pandemic? Because I know you have been out in the community. APS wanted to make sure students were still receiving access to food during this time. But what did you hear from right. parents? Yeah, so we heard a couple of things. As a matter of fact, Rose, um, uh, back before COVID-19 happened, we were trying to address stabilization of our caregivers. The research was emerging um, at the time about, yes, a quality education matters, but if you don't stabilize the caregiver, it actually uh, makes it impossible to break out of intergenerational poverty. In other words, and education isn't enough, um, especially here in Atlanta. So, uh, so what our family started telling us was, yes, and this, like I said, this is going into COVID-19. Food was an issue, mm -hmm. but they also named things like um, 
uh, having access to adult education, uh, having a house that they can afford or an apartment they can live in, uh, making sure that they can afford utility bills. And, um, and they would always talk about transportation and access to quality health care as well as quality food. And that was just the beginning of the list. Uh, we got that information from 211 calls that were going into the United Way and analyzed their data to get a sense of where our caregivers could get the most support and lift. And, um, and, and I'll tell you, it is just a sobering, sad story of deep poverty um, and desperation, especially uh, with the virus um, landing on top of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the weight on top of our families and our caregivers is uh, almost insurmountable. Uh, there's not a, a citywide or or uh, community-wide strategy for uh, addressing that. And that is in part why Atlanta Public Schools ended up teaming up with a couple of key partners, but really leaning in hard on food and food distribution because children and their families were actually starving. And given all that, do you know how many students weren't even able to complete their education online due to not having access to the internet? Yeah, in addition to the food issue, this new, um, you know, everyone talks about one-to-one -one technology and making sure that kids have devices, but I started messaging what I think is more of a um, state, county, city responsibility. I think technology connectivity is almost like a utility now. Basically, you know, you, it's, it's, it is as important as electricity and water. You just can't have access to jobs right now if you're not teleworking. And that is a huge part of the industry for, um, for every sector of, of work. The other part is that you can't learn without connectivity. Uh, we're moving to blended models. Um, at one point in APS, when we uh, ended our face-to-face -face instruction, we jumped straight into teleschooling and, uh, and the disparities just accelerated. So you can see uh, where literally, I'm going to say at least 10% of our student population, hands down, never fully connected to the learning environment, um, not only during the end of the school year, but even as we transitioned into the summer, those numbers grew. What will happen to those students? Will they, and I know that you're the outgoing superintendent, but is there something in place for them to receive whenever school comes back online, whether it's traditional in-classroom or what have you, will they be able to have some sort of remedial assistance or, and basically what are your concerns for those students in the fall? Well, I think everyone uh, who is already starting to analyze this data is, is counting the hours, the hours that have turned into days, that have turned into weeks, that have now turned into months. And so the amount of learning loss is just, um, you know, uh, multiplying every day that kids don't have the stable structure of what we consider a more normal school year. Now, having said that, we were already in remediation. I mean, think about it. In the summers, we encourage kids to do summer programming. I mean, it's, you know, you're running a small school system, seven to 10,000 kids and in a district our size on any, you know, given regular school year. So, uh, so it is, it is very disconcerting that, um, that kids who are already remediating and looking for enrichment opportunities, not only didn't finish their school year, didn't sign up for the summer um, programming that we did provide virtually mm -hmm. and are coming into a school year, you know, without the baseline um, that we normally would anticipate them coming back to school with. Now, having said that, I think that we, um, uh, there, there will be some opportunities for uh, trying to remediate, but the models that you keep hearing about across the country and locally are blended. So you still aren't really in school all the time, mm -hmm. and you're still depending on devices and connectivity to be able to have access to your education. And, and I think we did a great job um, with partners pushing out technology 
thousands and thousands of devices and hotspots and everything else. But like we're not in the home making kids turn it on and do their classwork. And I think that, you know, you're putting a lot on a caregiver who already has a lot um, trying to make ends meet, get meals on the table, pay the electric bill when jobs aren't available, um, mm -hmm. that we are um, that we we've you know, we we're just in a in a circumstance where I think the achievement gap will grow astronomically. This pandemic for some was eye opening because it exposed this this learning gap, this learning gap in terms of virtual learning. And it was among households based on race and class and region in terms of rural districts and even challenges for special needs students. So what do you hope comes out of this in the future as this nation looks at how it educates its public school students? Well, it's my hope that the model, I mean, for bigger reasons, the model is uh, changed as much as possible. I think that for decades, um, if not a half a century, it is clear that the model that we are using to educate black and brown, poor language learning, um, undocumented children, special ed even, is not working for them. The high stakes accountability model, uh, even the approach to how we do reading doesn't align with the children that urban centers and much of America serves. And that's 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 at the heart of why um, I think there's a lot of hand wringing right now because it was bad before and we know it wasn't aligning to the population and the demographics we have. And now there's not a well established model that we can prove serves the, the, those demographics of children better. But I hope that it's completely changed because we, I felt like, you know, at least in my tenure um, in, in urban environments like this, that we were never doing a great job serving. And that meant that the systems had to be changed. The approach to engaging um, these, these groups of students had to change. And I also think that, um, that even the, the methodologies for how we do our instructional practices had to change. Uh, it was, and, and that was getting nowhere in American public education across this country. So here we go again, and you and I have had this conversation. I've had this conversation with so many educators. Here we go again talking about, oh, it's time for another reform movement in public education. We've been around this track before. Well, but I do think like that, the thing that is maddening about public ed is that people always try to work on um, on structures, and, and it is... And it is, it is like, you know, we're going to change the accountability model. We're going to make more tests or we're going to um, try to tie this to teacher performance. But it never really got at the, I think, at the heart of, and I'm going to just start at the beginning, early childhood development. I mean, it it is there's so much we should be doing there. And yet we're a country that still doesn't do it. We don't do it consistently. We don't offer it to all people. We don't make it um, uh, not only free, but high quality or put it on some kind of scale that says that every American family, regardless of your socioeconomics or your own educational experience, we will ensure that your child gets the best early brain development. Mm -hmm. And that starts with healthcare um, of the mother carrying the child, but also once the baby's born, what do we do for those supports? And it's not forever. I mean, the, the, the critical brain development and the, and the, the most shaping that happens are only in a few critical years. So you're not um, tying uh, the hands of the government or federal dollars or state dollars in a way that makes it impossible for us to address. And, and here in, my, in, in Atlanta, uh, we worked on a pact that was all about um, getting a promise to every family that early childhood would be available. But but I mean, I'm just saying like, that's, I mean, that's not reform to me, Rose. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't know I don't know what people are thinking. I mean, I, I don't sit in those seats when when governors and state superintendents make those decisions, but I have been a state officer before um, I became superintendent. And I've never felt like the answer was inside a test or just drilling more standards or you know double blocking things, but taking away the arts or taking away um, 
uh, physical education. It's just like we kind of turned the whole thing on its head and we've never been able to right size it again. Whole child development is key and it starts at the beginning. And unless you start with a new frame for kids that gives every child's brain a chance to develop at a high quality level, then you're just fighting remediation mm -hmm. for the rest of their educational career. And so I could go on and on, but I don't think that's reform at all. I think that's just common sense and science about brain development. You came into the school year, and then as you end, you had a challenge with the pandemic six years ago. The challenge was how to get APS through the cheating scandal. As you leave, Dr. Starfin, those students caught up in that, have they received the resources they needed? And are some still in the district, to your knowledge? Yes, they are. Um, all of the children who were victims of the cheating scandal have not graduated yet. They're still um, in um, the upper grade levels, but working their way out. Uh, so, so it's you know it's it would the. the this has been a wild ride to say the least. Uh, the beginning and the end, I don't think I would have ever uh, anticipated, but I do think I was the right person uh, when I started the job and I'm still the same person and the right person as I close out the job. I um, d d you know, can manage crisis, uh, certainly know how to uh, lift organizations to uh, super high quality levels. And so, you know, so we've seen some, you know, peaks and valleys along the way. But, um, but I do think one thing that we did that I am most proud of is that we did target trying to support, find, and invest in uh, making right that horrible wrong related to the cheating scandal. And so, um, so it's, I mean, it's been a, a easily um, a multi-million dollar proposition. We put $9 million in at the outset at the first year when we were able to find all the children in the system. Um, we did our best to work with the district attorney to identify any other kids who had already left the system. Uh, he focused on that part, whereas we focused on what was happening inside of APS. And we provided those supports every single year. Um, so um, was it perfect? I don't think so. But we have a lot of student and family uh, testimony and feedback that if it weren't for those extra extra supports, we called it um, Target 2021. If it weren't for those extra supports, they may not have graduated. Can I prove that? No, but um, but was it the right thing to do given everything they'd experienced? Absolutely. We'll continue the conversation with outgoing APS Superintendent Dr. Maria Karstoffen in just a moment. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR I'm Rose Scott. Our guest this hour is outgoing Atlanta Public School Superintendent, Dr. Maria Karstoffen. You know, back in 2014, here at PBA 30, then PBA 30, we decided to do a documentary on you called Day One, <laughs> which you and I talked, spent the whole day at Washington High School. You talked about, through your lens, what makes an effective partnership in overseeing an urban school district. Take a listen. But I can tell you this for certain. Quality leadership in the superintendency and board governance is something that so few people have seen in urban education that when it's sitting in front of you, right, there is a reaction to it. It means that you have to have some key strategies around how you're going to lead things um, through instruction, how you're going to manage the district so that taxpayer dollars aren't wasted and things like buses run on time. And the third piece is there's a lot around political leadership, working with the state, working with the federal government, working with local officials and your school board. That means that you push out corruption. 
You push out people who try to manipulate things around who gets hired and why they get hired. You push out things like nepotism and other problems that plague systems like this. All those metrics you mentioned there, were you able to either avoid or implement that during your time as superintendent? Well, one thing that I can say and is well documented is that I have six years <laughs> of board meetings and actions around the critical work of this district. I have always used our vision to be a high performing school district where students love to learn, educators inspire, teachers engage, and the community trusts Atlanta public schools again. That has been my aspirational goal from the beginning set by this board and has um, led us or motivated us uh, for the last six years. It is coupled with a mission around a caring culture of trust and collaboration. So kids graduate ready for college and career. So when you go to do this job as a superintendent, the way you get the resources, time, people, money to get that mission done every day to continue to work and aspire to that vision is through your board meetings. And I, I am so proud that for the last six years, there is nothing on our agendas that on consent or on um, discussion and action that did not pass, if not unanimously, actually. So uh, no matter what was happening all outside APS or inside of APS or any you know political drama, at the end of the day, I know that where I sit, there's one critical thing that happens every month that must go well. And it must go well so that children and staff members and parents get the tax dollars implemented in the direction that serves um, children and families. And, uh, and so I, I think when I, you know, that is my litmus test for whether or not we are able to get our, our job done for children. And we had a lot of controversial things over the years. We've had a lot of challenging um, uh, in, 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 you know, circumstances that kind of hit us, but also initiatives we were trying to move forward. Um, but in every case, uh, these ha have passed. Our board meetings are professional. Um, we cut out all the, the circus behavior and uh, and the, the, the back and forth that you typically see in some of these board meetings uh, across the country. And even Atlanta Public Schools was experiencing right before I started. So, I mean, I think that, you know, for trying to judge across, you know, whether or not we were able to do those things. Um, even at the legislature, we haven't had uh, failed bills or, um, or our local delegation, while we've not always agreed, but they mm -hmm. have um, been able to move things through. And I have to say, in every case, even at the governor's level, um, uh, we've had support for Atlanta public schools. So, you know, this is, it has been a heavy lift, but, um, but I think all indicators say that we actually um, were able to do all the things that we promised we would do against that vision and mission. That being the case, when did the breakdown with the APS board begin? Because what you You'd just said- add, yeah, you'd have to ask the board about what they were doing amongst themselves, because I think for a lot of people, um, and, and, and again, if you look at all the work and what you're seeing publicly, and I can also say I had six years, even this year, I ensured that the board completed my evaluation um, all years of meeting and exceeding expectations and doing the work that I was directed to do and that um, and that I was held accountable for doing. So, uh, so I think that there were a lot of things that were happening um, behind the scenes that I know I wasn't party to. Um, I was not involved in those conversations. I don't know who they were talking to and how they came to their decision. Um, and, and, and that's, that's kind of how they decided to uh, manage uh, their decision making and and work with the public and this superintendent and that's on the board to explain i still think that they're for a lot of people because they write me call me you know, ask me about it all the time but it's just something i don't have the answers to because i wasn't part of that conversation was there too much external influence throughout your time as school chief 
I will say I fought against that absolutely every single day, Rose. There are always people outside of APS trying to get the hustle, trying to get um, back into the system to do whatever they were doing before. But there's always new ideas for how um, APS could fund or front or um, or uh, kind of be either like the scapegoat for things that other leaders, you know, could should have been managing on their own. I think there's a lot of um, due due to APS and you know and and then make them defend themselves. And we you know we've we've been in constant battles around um, tax allocation districts, the abatements um, in in areas that don't need uh, tax breaks for businesses. Um, what are some of the other ones? Uh, name it. I mean, you could, there's so many things that we've been pressured about over the years. Um, and, and I know that I have stood up to those, um, both individually from the role I sit in, but I also, when it was bigger than my authority, I went to the school board and sought permission to, uh, lean in harder or take a legal stand or, um, or you know, address it at a higher level, and I never acted without um, the endorsement and support of those positions. Do you think you should have had greater support from the school board? There's a change there in your tenure. There was a change in members who were elected to the school board. So there were members that were there when you started that weren't there now. Right. I mean, and that's a fair, I think it's a fair assessment that um, people get elected and um, and have a different agenda. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, that's what democracy is about. We're going through that as a nation. And so there's no surprise that you go through that at a, at a local level, too. Um, but I do think the public was clear that uh, that APS was moving in the right direction, that we had a team that was... Um, was uh, had integrity and was working for the benefit of children, not adult agendas. And uh, and I also think, you know, there's a lot to be said for uh, the effort that we were making, even when, you know, clearly not everyone in the community is going to agree on something um, that even if we didn't agree on the strategy and the strategy was still approved, that when we did do the implementation, it was done at a high quality level. So it's not like, you know, we uh, botched uh, the administrative rollout of how we were going to do the things we said we were going to do. And so uh, so I think that that uh, when you do that, it builds trust and 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 you'll still have you know, advocates who disagree, you're going to still have people nipping at your ankles. You're still going to have people who, you know, kind of slug you left and right every once in a while. But I don't think anyone could say that we, we were um, not doing a high quality job, even if we disagreed about the, uh, the initiative or the direction the district was going in. Were there and, some and fights will, though? Were there some fights that you just yeah, gave in because yeah, you just... And I, and and I think that you know some of the some of the fighting um, again does not ever come from this side. I've said this a thousand times. I don't start fights. What what happens in Atlanta is that you're typically in my world as everybody's trying to put their head under the radar and get the job done for kids and families, taxpayers and voters because we have voters who 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 support us on the. East Bloss, the one penny sales tax for bricks and mortar renovations and construction. We have taxpayers who make our general fund happen every single year. And then we have the people who actually are going to the district every day, staff, caregivers, and children. And we try to get under there and stay focused on that. But the fights were typically because, um, again, you wake up one day and you're reading it in the paper, or you get the call after the decision's been made, or you don't get any notice whatsoever, and you find out about it because um, Rose Scott wants an interview for a closer look. So you know, so it's it was we I ne we never started a fight, but once it started, which is what I think makes some people uncomfortable. But once it started, I am not the kind of leader who was going to. 
um, you know, just take the punch and go down. Like we were going to, you know, and it brought us to our knees a couple of times. I can, I can tell you have calluses right now, but I, I just don't think it's right for people to abuse their authority or to demand that the district just gets in line because um, you're being asked by a, a city father or an important business leader or um, or someone who is um, like who is. Well, I mean, it just depends on the position. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, you know, I do think that the most public one that was a challenge was around tax allocation districts, just that, you know, that we were expected to continue to allow those allocation districts to be run horribly. I mean, Atlantic Station has more debt that doesn't get paid off um, than any of those TADs. And so when people, they always throw back at APS, well, you know, it's raising property values and you're going to get the money sooner or later. But then you find out later that no one managed them well, or that some of them are so rich, but they're not they're not closing them and redirecting the money to be able to right size things. So to put it to put a finer point on it, it's one point four billion dollars of development that comes out of the public school system into the community, which is constitutionally allowable, apparently. Uh, and and APS b- before me signed on the dotted line to accept mm-hmm. those contracts. All we were saying is that if you're going to add another $500 million of burden on the district for the Gulch or any other project, pick anything, we're saying that you have to clean up the rest of it so that you don't break the bank. On And, and, and by the way, the people who feel the burden the most are going to be taxpayers. And then you add things like abatements coming out of the development authorities and, and, and Rose, I mean, we, we track every last one of them. Overwhelmingly, these abatements go to communities that are well-developed. I don't think Buckhead needs a tax break for a boutique hotel. It doesn't make any sense. So you're just you're and so what we what we were always saying is if you want to use the money from the school system, which is overwhelmingly black, brown, poor and and serving kids in South and West Atlanta, at minimum, could you do some of those kinds of big investments in the south side of the city? Like just 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 help the families who will be losing the money that should be going to their kids' education. And I'm all about development. I mean, I benefit, I live downtown, I work downtown. I benefit from that like everyone else mm-hmm. who, um, who isn't living in abject poverty or intergenerational poverty. But the, but the way this is being done, um, the, the strong arming that goes along with it, just, you know, the, the blind votes, you know, where there's only a lone voice, like asking questions, that's not right. And mm-hmm. I don't think taxpayers signed up for that. You just said a moment ago, you don't pick fights. Are you willing to admit that there was some missteps on your part? Oh, I make mistakes this- every day. You can ask anybody. I don't believe that I'm the perfect leader by any stretch of the imagination. I literally have tens of thousands of people who have open access to me that let me know every time they think I make the tiniest misstep. Like I didn't, you know, put on, you know, even down to you could have worn brighter colors at your board meetings to look a little more lively. That sounds like a PR person. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, or it could be something as big as, um, uh, you know, one of these tax allocation districts or or strategy around annexation or whether or not I, you know, um, you know, you talk to the media on this issue, but don't say anything about that issue. But but I think, Rose, for me, the the reason I'm I think I, I relate to a lot of people um, and, and that's sometimes that's a, that's a love you or leave you relation, right? But still, but I think a lot of people um, are, were comfortable, even in the most controversial work we were doing, 
is because I'm a straight shooter. I don't, I'm not trying to, I never worry about what thing Rose Scott is going to play back to me on WABE that came out of my mouth in large part because I say what I believe and I believe what I say because I've done the work, I've studied it really hard. I've tried to comb through everything and, um, and I would love to, uh, you know, be able to do that without having any controversy related to it. But there are just some things you just can't agree to in the in the culture of the underbelly of what happens in the shadows of Atlanta. And there are many. And I think that this city isn't, it, you know, isn't. Um, yeah, we talked. We started with all the light, and it is. It's such a great city. For some, for some, it is wonderful. And you get a lot of benefit from being in Atlanta, but it is not for all. In my world though, I sit with the not for all, all day long, every school year, during the coronavirus, during the cheating scandal and all the stuff in between. And so the for all the light in Atlanta, the shadows, are always kind of draining the lift that you could be giving to those people, but but there but there's there's just there are folks who just have decided they don't want to share any of that pie. And my theory has always been this: it's such a rich city. There is so much money. You don't even have to shrink your pie piece. You just have to make the pie plate bigger, so your slice is still the same size but you're just allowing a few more people to get a tiny bit of the share. So they don't have to live in intergenerational poverty. So they aren't starving in a, in a pandemic, that they're getting the healthcare they need. And I don't think that that's, um, that's just, and I, and I, and I'm, and I just can't apologize for that. I will never um, uh, apologize for pushing back on people who I know can make a difference but have chosen to go down a path that leaves the children and families I've had to serve along with a great team, we, we just can't turn our backs on them. And I know too much not to push when I know something's wrong. What's different about you as a person from 2014 to now? <laughs> it's almost like, it's, it's hard to recognize yourself. <laughs> um, I, uh, I definitely, when I first came in, uh, I did, you, you can tell, like I played things very close to the vest. I never, um, I swallowed a lot of the stuff that was dished out. People picking fights, trying to drag you into the arena. Um, I really did try to allow people to just do whatever it is that's acceptable in the culture and the context. And I just keep moving as much as I could um, with the agenda we had. The challenge with that is that the agenda slows down. If not, in some areas, completely stops because people block it. Uh, and I think that I found a voice that I, you know, I think I've always been, you know, a fighter for kids and, but it's expanded. Like I, I've learned so much about um, how the, how the sewage works in our city. I've learned so much about how transportation could flow better. I've learned so much about um, how to, uh, uh, work through very complicated, uh, technically unsound uh, strategies that were have either been approved through the legislature or have been part of um, the taxing strategy of this city. I've just learned a lot that uh, has made me a, just a different, much better educated person in leadership. Things that I never asked about before I took a job or looked at a community, I just didn't know what you didn't know. Um, so I feel like I'm, I'm a different person who is 
opened my heart more to to people who I, uh, you know, like I've always known, like we're serving people, but like just to open your heart and your mind to a new strategy and a new way that that I know that I was never, I would have never been open to before. And, um, and I have to thank Atlanta for that. Uh, I think it's certainly um, made me more humble. <laughs> the kids know how to straighten you out too. So, um, so I've, you know, I've, 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 I've always been an advocate for civil and human rights. I mean, from Selma, Alabama, but our students taught me how to do so much more in that space. I'm mean, even right now, I have interns in the room behind me analyzing the data about our families and their needs. Um, they're trying to unite North and South Atlanta. Uh, I just, you know, I just, I've, I've been humbled by the, the, the lift and the resilience and the grit of what it means to bring the best out of APS. And I think APS brought the best out of me. And finally, in one of our earlier conversations years ago, you talked about growing up in Selma. You talked about the influence of your parents. Uh, sadly, you lost your father during your time here as superintendent. But the passion, the environment that you grew up in, those words of wisdom you used to always tell me about from your mom and your dad. How do you sum all this up now as you're leaving? Well, now that you've made me cry. That was not you. my intention. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do. I think about it all the time. But um, as I summarize the experience, it's been, um, I've told her, it's like, it's my, it's my life, but it was my, it was my APS best life. It was, I think my dad would be really proud. And my mom, who saw some of the work as I was leaving, I mean, they were both very worried when I took this job. It was my father who ultimately convinced me that um, that I should expect nothing. <laughs> He's like, don't go into this role expecting anything to break your way, to go your way, for people to be any nicer or meaner, just, just go in it with your commitment to um, turning around the district after the cheating scandal and make it the best, the best effort you've ever given to anything. And, and he would have, he probably, he, my, they predicted that it would sort of probably end this way um, and not to be afraid of that. And so, so when I, when I think back on it, I just think that it was it was the um, trust that the community desperately needed rebuilt. Uh, it was the uh, I look at the culture in the inside the organization. People really are proud of APS. I mean, I'm wearing my APS T-shirt, but we it's a it's a movement inside the system. Um, they want to wear. They want to wear their school paraphernalia. They want to promote APS. And we've, even in social media, we've opened the world to all the good teaching practices. Um, I'm not, you know, there was a time when APS was kind of on lockdown because people were afraid of what craziness might come out of it. I don't, I don't monitor any of that. I have absolute confidence that my, co my colleagues are going to um, always promote their best selves. And, and I, and I think that, you know, the culture is the thing that everyone told me was likely never to change. That that you could you could do all these great strategies, but that it wouldn't change. And and when all of the transition turn up was happening, someone polled our parents, and and that poll said that our parents believed in us. They thought we were doing a great job, and that blew me away. It was at like 79% of our families and maybe like 10% were undecided. So there were very few people who were not happy with APS who were sending their kids to the district, a district that wasn't perfect yet. And so I think that our team, the, all the people inside of APS who um, let their guard down, let me in, um, took a chance on me, allowed, uh, allowed me to partner with them and to accept um, 
to accept the direction on the transformation was a huge lift. And that culture change, if it stays, APS really does have a fighting chance to be that district that it's been aspiring to be. And, um, and I think that's the greatest, um, the greatest outcome I could expect. What's next for you? Well, I, I don't know because I, when things were starting to transition a little bit in the spring and I felt like I knew how the school year was going to end, I could get in front of a lot of things and really focus on what my next step would be. Uh, COVID-19 happened and everything fell apart mid-March. So, and then it got worse, meaning, you know, you all the, the horrible um, uh, food and electricity and housing issues our kids were experiencing, I, I put all that on pause. I mean, I didn't even start it really. I went 110% um, frontline for APS uh, to hold the organization together, which is the right thing to do. I saw a lot of people doing that. I'm no you know special person for um, uh, being on the front lines. We have nurses and, 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 and food nutrition workers and folks who have been out there with me. So I don't, I'm not special in that respect, but I will say that it did, it has consumed me and making sure that, um, making sure that we ended the school year well, I thought then I would have a moment, but then the civil unrest um, also emerged. And, you know, we had a lot going on inside the system, still trying to do our work and it just, it just led me to a place where I am right now. Um, I haven't decided and I haven't really taken the time to reflect enough to be um, prepared for uh, being able to answer the question with certainty. So um, I'm still undecided, but I am hopeful that I'll be able to still do um, meaningful work in communities and make large impact. Dr. Maria Christoffen, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose Scott, I am going to miss you. <laughs> Thank you. And a note of disclosure, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. This is Closer Look. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.